Welcome to the Wildlife Explorer, a podcast by Essex Wildlife Trust, where we aim to inspire you with our work to protect the wildlife and wild places of Essex and what you can do to help wildlife wherever you live. We're very excited to be back for season two with more special guests, experts from around the Trust and lots of fun facts about the wonderful wildlife we share our Essex home with. On today's show, we're going to be celebrating the wonderful women that work for our organisation. We're taking a woodland wander in search of our elusive Essex toads and offering advice about what you can do to help our emerging spring wildlife. From bees to hedgehogs, we can all do our own little bit to help them transition from winter to spring. We've also got a brand new feature called What Three Birds? which will hopefully help you identify some of the bird calls you might hear while you're out and about or in your garden. It's all coming up on the show. There's been a lot going on these past months. Christmas feels like a distant memory and world events have taken yet another unexpected turn. However, the one thing we can rely on is that nature is its normal, resilient self, waking from its deep winter slumber and slowly unfurling its fresh green leaves, delicate petals, and quietly working behind the scenes, cooking up a storm in nature's kitchen ready to provide nutritious food to a new generation of animals that will be born into the world this year. It's time to say bye for now to our winter visitors and welcome in the first signs of spring. What have you spotted so far this year? On my lunchtime walks, daffodils have appeared as if by magic it seems, and primroses are popping up in the most unlikely of places, bringing a palette of new colours with them. Lesser celandine also carpets some of the roadside verges where I live, looking like miniature sunshines, which is nice. Although every day is a wildlife day for us here at the Trust, we celebrated World Wildlife Day on the 3rd of March, with this year's theme being Recovering Key Species for Ecosystem Restoration. On that topic, according to a recent report by People's Trust for Endangered Species and the British Hedgehog Preservation Society, it was revealed that hedgehogs have declined by between 30 and 75% across different areas of the countryside since the year 2000. But there is a glimmer of hope for hedgehogs in urban areas, with their numbers seeming to stabilise a little. Two lucky little hogs were safely rehomed in our ranger Tiffany's garden recently and you can see a video of this along with a link to the full report on our Facebook page. You can also find out more about what we're doing to help wildlife every day in Essex by heading to our website and reading our blogs. We have a new one called Conservation Matters where we put together a roundup of some of our top projects across that month. It's easy to get overwhelmed with some of the negative things happening around us, so it's really nice to be able to read something positive and inspiring, focusing on all the good things and improvements that are going on to make life better for our wildlife 
and also ourselves in a lot of cases. So if you fancy a pick-me-up, grab a cup of tea and have a read about some of the good things happening near you. You might be surprised to know that 70% of Essex Wildlife Trust staff are women, as well as 48% of our volunteers. So, as you can see, women are incredibly important to the work we do here. Despite this, there are many often unspoken barriers that can prevent women from going into this line of work, and it can feel like an impossible leap into the unknown. Emma Ormond-Bones, our Landscape Conservation Area Officer for the North East, and Katie Goldsborough, our Ranger at Aberton Reservoir Nature Discovery Park, are here to try and tackle some of those awkward questions and stereotypes, and offer a frank look at some of the issues women may feel they faced, and advice to overcome them. Katie Goldsborough and I am the ranger at Aberton Nature Discovery Park. Hi, I'm Emma Ormond-Bones. I'm the conservation area manager for North East Essex and we both work for Essex Wildlife Trust. So we're here today to talk about being a woman in conservation. So as part of our roles, we are practical conservation and we manage various nature reserves across the county. Absolutely. So how did you get into conservation then, Katie? So I uh, did my degree in zoology and my master's in wildlife conservation, uh, which highlighted all the different roles within wildlife conservation. And I started becoming a ranger during doing my master's. What about you? Oh, I've, well, I've been with Essex Wildlife Trust for 12 years. I did a degree in ecology um, and alongside that was volunteering with one of the Wildlife Trust's local groups. When an opportunity came up to work in the admin department at Essex Wildlife Trust, I jumped at it. Um, and from there, as and when jobs came up, I applied. So I became the Living Landscapes Coordinator, which was effectively managing partnerships with landowners and supporting landowners with wildlife conservation. And then three years ago, I became the area manager, which is looking inwards, managing our own nature reserves. That's so cool. Such like a wealth of experience as well, doing all the different areas within the trust, because that's it. It's not just the practical conservation side of it that makes a difference to wildlife in our county. It's all of the roles within the trust. Absolutely, yeah, it all comes together. And for me, there's never a dull day. It's always been an interesting job, still is after 12 years. Um, and just, it's such a great team of people all pulling together. Like you said, it doesn't matter whether you're out in the field, working in an office, doing media, doing fundraising, everybody is working together for the same cause. Exactly, all helping wildlife within our county to thrive. Absolutely. So... Talking just about the women out and about in the field, like you and I, do you find there's any challenges with that? Um, I think there, there is uh, physical challenges that you can face being a woman, especially working out in uh, the field as such, so such as 
uh, going to the toilet, for instance. That's, that's a good one. That's <laughs> a big one. And we all have funny stories of <laughs> trying to find a bush or... And stinging nettles. Yeah. That's definitely a thing. And so, yeah, so just things like that. And, and also periods as well can be yeah. a uh, quite a challenge at the time of the month yeah. um, when you're out and about in a nature reserve and you can't access a toilet all day. Physical and mental, isn't it? So when you're feeling like you're having a bit of a tough time, perhaps your hormones are high, you don't necessarily want to to sort of use a chainsaw and have a really hard physical day. But I don't know about you, but I tend to find that once I get out and about, the fresh air and exercise actually makes me feel better. It does. Mentally, at least. Yeah, and we're, we're also very lucky, I think within EWT, that we have are able to speak about these things. Yes. So if we're having a work party, things we can talk to other colleagues about it, you know, if we're not feeling up to doing that task or, you know, if we're feeling limited. It's, and having that open conversation really makes a difference, I think, to your actual overall well-being and the mental health aspect about feeling capable of doing your job. That's really important. And it's, I suppose it's fair to say we're talking today about women in practical conservation for International Women's Day. But really, everybody faces challenges at work, at home, in their life. And by having those conversations, it just brings people together you know, from for whatever you're dealing with, it just helps to have those people there supporting each other, understanding, and like you said, just supporting rather than judging. And I think that's, yes. we are fortunate because the culture of Essex Wildlife Trust is all around inclusivity and equality. Yep. And around good communication. And that's, from my perspective, that's so important. It is. And we, we also have, you know, women from all sorts of backgrounds, the diversity of it, different age groups as well. And I think with that comes their own challenges. So obviously what we've spoken about, but women that have young families or pregnancy and menopause are all things that get speaking about them in the first place with any job, but having the practical side of it with what we do, you know, using tools and machinery comes its own challenges. So having an open space to talk about that is really important. Yeah. Breaking down those barriers, I think that's the key thing. Yeah. I think that for a lot of women, perhaps they wouldn't feel comfortable talking to a male colleague about periods, about perimenopause, um, about pregnancy, about loss, whatever, whatever even mental health, whatever's yes. challenging them. But actually... By talking to colleagues, male, male and female, it helps the understanding, but it also might help them with whatever they're going through. So yeah. it can only be a good thing. No, definitely. Have, have you faced any challenges, do you think, in your time working in practical conservation? <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Um, so when I used to do a lot of the partnership working, um, whenever I was working with a male colleague, I found that quite often landowners would defer to the man in terms of questions, decision-making. Yeah. It was a natural assumption that he was in charge. I don't think it was a conscious thing. I don't think it was meant as a slight to me, but it, it was definitely there. Yeah. There was that sort of uh, default to the man for authority. That's changed, I think. I think there are still challenges, but it's definitely changing. Things are definitely improving. Um, the days of people raising an eyebrow and giggling or laughing. Oh, you use a chainsaw. That's sweet. That's cute. Oh, oh that's funny. I, d I don't find that anymore, do you? 
no, no, I, things are changing and, you know, attitudes are changing. And I think it is a generational thing as well. We're coming into a time where women are diverging into so many different roles now, and especially practical roles, yep. that, yeah, then the limitations are such... Go on, <laughs> People's prejudices and things are just, yeah, it's, it's getting less. But there, do you, have you found a sort of limitation as such or maybe a prejudgment on based on appearance because for women as well I think appearance and uh, that sort of judgment that comes with that can be quite quite a, th- uh, a limitation that stops people wanting to do typical uh, man-based roles but yeah I, some yeah I have a little bit to be honest um, being blonde is an interesting one. I know that doesn't necessarily make you female to be blonde. No. <laughs> you blonde, blonde men out there. But comments about a blonde woman with a chainsaw, that stereotype, yeah. I think that lasted strangely longer than some other stereotypes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting one. And I remember feeling very self-conscious when I first started doing practical work that I had a pink rucksack. Yeah. Because, you know, all of my male colleagues, they had black bags or green bags. And it might sound silly, but I wanted people to take me seriously. Yeah. And now when I look back, I've got the confidence to know that people take me seriously because of what I do. Not, Not what you look like or what you like, yeah. And whether your hair's blonde and whether your nails are painted. Exactly. Um, whether I've got tattoos or not, all that sort of thing. Yeah, because I, I love pink. And <laughs> <laughs> I would be the pink Power Ranger if I could. Um, and, but for that, you know, like you said, wearing makeup, like your appearance... Uh, although you know you'll have you'll get a judgment from it, it doesn't actually reflect what skills you have and it doesn't matter you know what colors you like or what you look like or what color your hair is or anything is about your ability to make a difference to our natural world that is overall isn't it what, that's that's what we're here to do yeah and like you said about tattoos and things as well you know it's just an expression and yeah the the, the comments that i think don't come out uh, don't we haven't experienced them through um, people being, you know, horrible or anything. It is just a, uh, it's just a different time, isn't it? And I think so. Sometimes it's just um, breaking those stereotypes down, sh- setting an example. Um, and the more, I think, the more women in practical conservation roles, the more people that champion it, the more that sort of aren't afraid to have a pink rucksack or tattoos or painted nails or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And I suppose we should put that out there for men and women. Yep, 100%. Whoever and wants to paint their nails and have a pink rucksack, yeah. why not? You should be confident in your ability to do your job. And even if you don't, no matter what, that's the point, isn't it? It doesn't matter what. It's just about not making that assumption. Absolutely. So have you had ever had any interesting or funny stories when it comes to sort of your appearance? Um, well, I, I have a few uh, tattoos on my arms, which I've had um, uh, comments before when out using chainsaws and things. So, like, we get really hot, so you have to take your layers off. And, um, yeah, people have seen them and said, oh, tattoos are only for prisoners and sailors. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, just take it on the chin, I'm just like, oh, yeah. You know, people don't tend to mean it. Uh, in a harmful way but again it's just that pre-assumptions of what you know some people think a woman should look like etc but it's about not taking that on board to let it affect 
our work. Yes, that's true. So, I mean, for me, I've been in doing it 12 years. For you, you're, you're a confident member of staff. You've been doing your role for a number of years. If you were straight from university, um, perhaps a little less experienced, a little less confident, a woman wanting to go into practical conservation, what would you say? Have you got any advice for her? I would say you can do it. There is nothing stopping you that you can't find a way to make it work for you. Because like we said, there's so many options now for being able to help in practical conservation, but also conservation as a whole, that you can find something that works for you. And I think it's important to, to mention as well that the uh, education side of things isn't a barrier as well. If you, you know, are not able to go to university or college, you know, you can go through like what you did and what I did, go through volunteering and going out there and getting the experience, like the practical experience yourself. And that all it all together will combine to help you on your way to being able to have either a career in it or even just a hobby if you want to do it around your main job. Yeah. That's a good point. I think it's, it's as important for us as women not to put our own barriers up in our mind and think, oh, we can't do that because people will think we can't. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't anticipate. And, and I speak from somebody that's done that. It's easy to anticipate bad reactions or to be a bit intimidated by a, a, um, a sort of a, a male-weighted industry. Yeah. But actually... When you, if if you're if you if you're bold and you take that step, particularly if you join a, a really good organisation like Wildlife Trust that's got its values and its culture really mapped out, you'll find that the people you come across are like-minded and supportive and yeah. communicative, and you should be able to ask those questions in your mind, whether it's about the weight of the chainsaw how you deal with your period when you're stood in a field yeah or whether it's as simple as how you use your computer it doesn't matter what it is there shouldn't really be anything that's taboo you should be able to reach out and ask and i think for me that's what i would say don't be afraid to ask whatever question is on your mind because the right organization will have somebody that is comfortable and happy to talk to you about that 100 percent and I think the other thing that is the most important to have and to express to, um, you know, whether you're volunteering or you're planning to work is just have passion. Be passionate yeah. about what you do, because if you feel like you don't have the skills to do it, you know, passion will help push you forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Essex Wildlife Trust has passion in abundance in its staff and its volunteers and uh, you can't do without it, can you? Working in the natural environment, working for a charity, it's all, it's all about the passion and the enthusiasm and the drive, and we have oodles of it. So I think, as you say, Katie, if you're a woman wanting to go into conservation, just do it. You can do it. You can do it! <laughs> Woo! Just do it indeed. Thanks both. And if you have any questions for Emma or Katie or any of our team, we would be more than happy to answer them for you. So just email communications at sxwt.org.uk and we'll do our best to help you. Now, most of us have fond memories of the lovable character Mr Toad from our childhood stories. But sadly, these days, toads are in big trouble and our warty, wide-eyed friends need our help. 
Lauren, our communications officer, is here to explain a bit more as she goes off in search of these special creatures. Hi everyone, my name's Lauren and I'm the communications officer at Essex Wildlife Trust. I love wildlife, everything weird and wonderful. In March, it's time for our local toads and frogs to come out of hibernation and make their annual appearance. I'm on a walk in my local area to visit a wonderful habitat for nature, ponds. Ponds are useful for an abundance of wildlife, from tiny insects, little fish, to swooping birds. And some of us are lucky enough to have ponds in our own gardens. Today, I'm talking about common toads, because despite their name, they're becoming less and less common. The common toad may not be the best looking member of Essex's wildlife family, but they're just as important. In the winter, they aren't so easily seen. Toads hibernate over winter months in damp leaf piles, woodland patches, under stones, and can sometimes be found in old flower pots. Anything that will give them enough shelter to weather the cold. For many animals and plants, Spring is an alarm clock that wakes them from their winter slumber. Spending most of their time in damp woodlands, thick hedgerows and abundant foliage, toads will shuffle and crawl along wet and damp habitats, travelling some distance at dusk to find crunchy invertebrates to feed on, like woodlice, slugs and beetles. But the toad is a creature of comfort and will return to the same shelter after he's eaten no matter how far he's travelled in search of dinner. So, I've arrived at the pond. It's nice and remote, this one. It's got loads of little rocks and shallow slopes for toads to get in and out of the pond with ease. It's an ideal habitat for our common toads. Mm, I can't see any signs yet. What I'm looking for are long strings of shiny black pearls that will eventually become little toadlets. You'll know it's toad spawn rather than frog spawn because frogs lay a cluster of jelly-like eggs and toad spawn looks like long ribbons. If you do spot toad spawn, keep visiting the pond. You'll be able to watch these tiny black dots transform into little comma shapes as the unhatched tadpoles begin to grow. I'll come back next week to check on this lovely little wetland habitat and see if I can discover any toad spawn or toad sightings then. Well, I'm saying goodbye to the pond now for today, and I'm on my walk home. What's really interesting about toads is that they use ancestral ponds for breeding. This means they'll return to the same pond they were born at to breed and produce their own young. Toads love a routine. In some areas, over a thousand toads can cross the same route. A mass migration in some cases. But the toad routine is being interrupted. Over time, as areas become more urban, the pathway for toads making their return journey to their ponds can be really dangerous. Roads and urban developments are preventing toads from reaching their ancestral ponds, making it harder for them to breed. We need toads as a vital part of our ecosystem. They're actually keystone species. If you don't know what this means, 
it means that without toads, the ecosystem would be dramatically different or cease to exist. If we think of all the predators that feed on toads, hedgehogs, rats, snakes, birds of prey, and then all the prey the toads eat, woodlice, slugs, beetles, earthworms, you can see just how important the toad is. That's why we want you to get involved in our toad watch. If we can record where toads are spotted, we can help to make their crossings safer. I'm not sure if you can hear, but there's cars already in the distance, and that's only five minutes from this little pond. So we really need to do our best to protect them. Next time you're out and about, make sure to keep a really close eye out for our little toad friends, because they are really important to our ecosystem. They certainly are. Thanks, Aaron. And if you'd like to help a toad cross the road or have spotted any signs of toad activity, please let us know by going to our website and searching for Toad Watch, our campaign page where you can enter any sightings. We've had over 200 records submitted so far, so please help us by adding to this so we can identify their highways and work to ensure these are protected. Now, as mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have a brand new feature for season two of the Wildlife Explorer called What Three Birds, where each week we will play three different clips of bird song to help you identify different species while you're out and about. Our first today is arguably one of the easiest birds to identify due to the fact that it sounds like it's singing its own name, and that is the chiff chaff. These birds are much easier to ID by sound than they are by sight, as they tend to be quite elusive and look similar to willow warblers with their light brown colouring. Listen out for them in woodland, scrub, parks and gardens. Next up is the dunnock. This little bird is quite shy, but can be seen hopping about under hedges as its other name, hedge sparrow, suggests. Males and females form strong pairs, but the female will still mate with another male, so neither male knows who the father is and both supply her chicks with food. Cunning. They're regular visitors to gardens, so look out for them in yours. You can also find them in woodlands, hedgerows and parks. And finally, for this week, we have the song thrush. Living up to its common name, it has a beautiful, loud song with repeating phrases. From March until April, song thrushes breed, often producing three broods of up to five blue spotty eggs. You can often see the remnants of these under hedgerows.
Song thrushes will eat all kinds of food, but earthworms make up a large part of their diet. When the ground becomes too hard to get at them, song thrushes will eat snails instead. To get at the meat inside, they take the shell and crack it open by banging it against a stone anvil, which is a behaviour unique to them. Look out for these beautiful spotty-fronted birds in parks and gardens, woodland and scrub. While we're on the subject of what you can spot, let's have a quick roundup of this month's wildlife wows. Take a peaceful stroll down to your local lake or reservoir and you may witness the synchronised courtship ritual of one of nature's best dancers, the Great Crested Grebe. This graceful routine is a spectacle of mirrored manoeuvres, calls and fanning of their feathery ruffs, a display not to be missed. Having awoken from their long slumber, adders are another species who enjoy a boogie and can be seen performing a dueling dance to fend off stiff competition from males to mate. Listen for the familiar call of the cuckoo as it sneakily lays its eggs into the nest of an unsuspecting host bird and take a wander through a dazzling display of daffodils at our Wally Place Nature Reserve. You might even spot a warty toad popping up to say hello after emerging from hibernation. Also this month, keep an eye out for mad March hares. If you spot brown hares boxing in the fields, it is most likely that you're watching a female warding off the advances of an amorous male, not two males fighting as most people think. When a fight breaks out, the two hares will stand on their hind legs and attack each other with their front paws, pulling out fur, looking very much like two boxes in a ring. Now, the official first day of spring is nearly upon us, but the signs of the season have already started, with lots of species emerging from hibernation and rest over the winter. Providing early nectar sources for bees is very important at this time of year, and you may start to notice the first butterflies of the season too, particularly commas, red admirals and small tortoiseshells, which will all be looking for food. Frogs, newts and toads are also very active at this time of year, and we need to make sure we don't disturb them so they can breathe in peace. John Moore, our Living Landscapes coordinator, is here with his top tips for how you can help our early emergers this spring. I love cool crisp mornings in early spring. The sun is rising earlier, the birds are starting to sing and many plants are starting to burst into life. As temperatures rise, queen bumblebees will emerge from hibernation, having spent the entire winter underground, using up reserves of energy stored as fat. When she first emerges, she feeds on flowers, drinking nectar to gain energy. You can help pollinating species like bumblebees by growing sources of nectar and pollen, which can be in short supply at this time of year. Even just having a patch in a tiny garden or planter will make a huge difference. The key is choosing the right plants. Opt for plants with nectar-rich single flowers rather than double blooms, which are harder for pollinators to access and may not contain any pollen or nectar. Winter aconites are great to plant under trees and shrubs, 
and provide a carpet of bright yellow flowers in late winter. They're pollen rich and attractive to bumblebees and honeybees. The snowdrop is another early flower and a signed spring is on the way. They contain abundant yellow pollen, helping bumblebees and honeybees emerging on those rare sunny winter days. Pussy willow will help feed queen bumblebees in early spring. It's an attractive shrub with fuzzy catkins that provide pollen and nectar. Some of the first butterflies of the year you're likely to see include the small tortoiseshell, red admiral and brimstone. The small tortoiseshell is a familiar garden visitor that can be seen all year round. It overwinters as an adult and you may sometimes disturb one in sheds or garages. It's mainly reddy orange in colour with black and yellow markings on the forewings and a ring of blue spots around the edges of the wings. The red admiral is a larger black, white and red butterfly which can be spotted feeding on flowers on sunny days all year round. Most are migrants from North Africa and continental Europe but some adults overwinter in sheltered spots. Later in the year their caterpillars feed on common nettles a good reason to have a wilder area in your patch. The brimstone is a fairly large lemon yellow butterfly with distinctive leaf-shaped wings. Adults hibernate through cold weather so may be seen flying on warm days throughout the year although they're most common in the spring. The food plants for the larvae are buckthorn and alderbuckthorn. Primroses are a good early source of nectar for bees, butterflies and other long-tongued insects. They're equally at home in borders or pots if you're short on space. Wallflowers provide long nectar season for many species and hellebores are another good nectar source, flowering from midwinter to mid-spring. Walking the dog this morning I came across crocuses bursting into flower. The crocus is a lovely spring flowering plant, providing early nectar and pollen for bees emerging from hibernation on warm spring days. Bees have been known to shelter inside the flowers of crocuses overnight while searching for suitable nest sites. If you don't have much space, you could consider growing clematis up a wall or a fence. There are many different varieties which flower at different times of the year. Growing herbs can be good if you're short on space. Marjoram and rosemary are particularly good for early bees. If you're lucky enough to have some lawn, leave areas uncut or raise the height of your mower to allow for low growing flowering plants to flower. Above all, don't kill insects by using chemicals in your garden. Say no to herbicides and pesticides and opt for natural solutions instead. It's not just insects that spring into life at this time of year. When hedgehogs emerge from hibernation in spring, they may have lost up to a third of their body weight. You can help by putting out supplementary food and water to help build them up. Hedgehogs will love any combination of meat-based wet dog and cat food. They're high in the protein that the hedgehogs need. Put the food and water in shallow dishes and leave in sheltered areas of your garden or in a purpose-made feeding station to prevent pets and foxes from stealing it. Do remember this food is supplementary to their natural diet. They should be getting most of their protein from insects and worms in the wild. Hedgehogs will be looking for suitable nest sites as well as food and water, so leave a wild corner with a log or leaf pile 
or a purpose-made hedgehog home. And don't forget to ensure that your hedgehog holes are clear of any obstructions so they can roam beyond your boundary. If you have a pond in your garden, take care at this time of year not to disturb frogs, newts or toads. Spring is breeding time, so watch out for spawn in your ponds. Don't be tempted to have a clear out or tidy up. Leave undisturbed until later in the year. If you want more ideas or information on what you can do to help nature recover, have a look at our website at www.sxwt.org.uk. Thanks, John. Some top tips there. Well, that's about it for this month. It's been lovely to be back with you, and I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Season 2. We'll be back again in April for another episode, and don't forget to give us a quick five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review to help the show reach lots more nature lovers out there. So, until next time, stay wild and enjoy the magic of spring.